Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now in 2 Thessalonians, we started the book last week, and I told, I shared with you that 2 Thessalonians was written just shortly after 1 Thessalonians, perhaps as, as much as just weeks after 1 Thessalonians, but certainly no more than months. Um, and it was, these were some of the earlier books written in the New Testament in the early 50s AD. And Paul had just addressed this whole idea of the rapture and the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians and talked about that catching away. We who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air. And so had a lot to say about the rapture. Then he had a lot to say about the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, or what we typically call the tribulation period. But there was some confusion. And so here in 2 Thessalonians, he picks up on it again here in chapter 2. Now, as I shared when we were in 1 Thessalonians on Sunday mornings, um, if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, and that was all we had about the rapture and the, the day of the Lord or the tribulation, I think um, you know, most people would look at that in and of itself and come to the conclusion that the rapture happens before the tribulation period, just the way that whole thing is laid out. Now, 2 Thessalonians is a bit different because if all you had was 2 Thessalonians and you just had this second chapter, which is the bulk of the teaching, it would be easy to be confused. And most people who believe in a um, either a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture, which means that Jesus catches the Christians up either in the middle of the tribulation or at the conclusion of the tribulation, um, most people who hold to that view do so generally on the basis of their understanding of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because here, it's, it's not as clear as seeing it as two different events. And so as a result, um, if you only read 2 Thessalonians, that could be really problematic. Personally, I just look at the whole thing in totality. Like I told you before, when you're, when you're looking at, at the Thessalonian epistles, you shouldn't assume that these people know about the book of Revelation, which was written almost 50 years later. But when you're reading 2 Thessalonians, you can certainly assume that they must have been familiar with 1 Thessalonians because it was the latest bestseller that they had just read just prior to this. And so what's happening here seems to be a, a disturbance as a result of some confusion regarding the first letter. And so just keep that in mind as we look at it. Now he says, verse 1, chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. Now, again, he, he's talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And typically, when we talk about the coming of Christ, it's usually when he comes and actually 
sets down on the earth and he comes in judgment. And so most people would see that as a reference to the, his um, you know, appearance for the purpose of judgment. Um, our gathering together to him is kind of a, an odd descriptive sort of thing. Some people have even looked at the references um, in the Gospels where Jesus talked about gathering people at the time of judgment and said, well, it must be talking about that. But again, remember, they didn't have those, those Gospels at this time either, so they, they couldn't have been alluding to something that hadn't been written yet. Um, in the context of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, to me, the most reasonable thing he'd be talking about, and most, most um, scholars would agree that the gathering together to him is talking about the rapture. The tricky thing is that in one sentence, it's talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, and he doesn't make a real clear distinction there. And If he did, it would have cleared this up. And it would have been nice, but he doesn't. But I think as we read through, you may see some other things that might shed light on it. But the point is, he doesn't want them to be shook up, he says, in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. The reference to spirit... Well, he's saying three different ways that they may have gotten bad information, all of which claiming to be from Paul, um, clarifying 1 Thessalonians. And probably he's referring to spirit as being a spiritual gift. Generally, when the Bible talks about the spiritual gifts, if you look, the word gift is generally in italics. Um, spiritual gifts in 1 Thessalonians, for instance, are really just called literally spirituals. And so he's probably talking about some word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or a word of prophecy. And then by word would be just something that someone would say, a message. I heard Paul say this. Or by letter, and it was not uncommon in the, in the first century and beyond that for several centuries for people to write fake letters ostensibly being written by certain people. And we have a lot of apocryphal books, several fake gospels that are the Gospel of Thomas and some others that were supposedly written by someone, and they are, they're not, and usually called pseudepigrapha because they're books that are falsely written. So that was probably going on already, but the gist of what was being communicated is that the day of Christ had come. That means we're already in it. It's already happened. Now, judging from what he says here, and again, keeping in mind the purpose of his epistle in First Thessalonians was to provide comfort to them, and he emphasizes that throughout here as well. Um, what is it that that the false letters were ascertaining. What is it that they were claiming? What, what was it that would shake them up so much? And that's key to understanding the passage. Because, for instance, if they, if they only thought that, well, 
I think we're actually in the millennium, for instance. That's not going to shake them up. If, if they only felt that, oh, we're in the tribulation right now, for one thing, the, the persecution at that time wasn't that bad. It was just starting. But again, if the, Paul had talked to them a lot about these things, if he had made it clear to them before that they are going to go through the tribulation, even if they were in the tribulation right now, and wow, this is it, this is the day of the Lord, this is God's judgment, why would they need to be, you know, why would they get so shook? Seems like they would get excited if their understanding was the judgment, day of judgment's going to come, and then the rapture's going to come, and we're going to be rescued. So in trying to, and, and it doesn't say, so I don't want to speculate too much, but I just want you to keep in mind, they were shaken by something. And so something that was that they were waiting for to happen, they were being told, it's already happened. And I think that's pretty clear. And again, for me, I would think, hey, the rapture was something that in 1 Thessalonians 4, they were being comforted in light of the fact that it was coming. It was seen as imminent, even as the day of judgment was seen as imminent. And so the only thing I can think of that's really plausible that they would get so shook up about would be if they thought that they had missed out on the rapture. Now, and this fits with 1 Thessalonians 4, because remember, that whole thing was written because they were upset about the people who had died, suggesting that the people who had died had missed out. And so he was saying, don't worry. You know, they're going to precede us. They're not at a disadvantage because they've died, because they'll be meeting us when we're caught up in the air. So this would fit with the flow of that, because if, if Paul told them, don't worry, the rapture is coming, you're going to be delivered before the day of judgment, comfort one another with these words, that makes perfectly good sense. And then for somebody to come along and say, you know what, this is looking like the tribulation period, either Paul was wrong, Paul changed his mind, or somehow we missed it. It was some secret, mysterious rapture, a symbolic rapture, or whatever. They thought they had missed something. And Nobody gets bummed about missing something bad. Oh, man, I hope this isn't the end of the tribulation and we just had it and I totally missed it. Uh, no, I, you, this is something that you want to miss. So he says, they're saying this, the day of Christ has come. And, and then he says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. This man of sin, and he goes on to describe him, and so we'll see that in a moment. But I want to point out a couple other things before we get to that. He says, before that day of judgment comes, before God wraps everything up, prior to that, there's going to be a falling away. And there is going to be this man who comes into power who does certain things. So he's saying, that hasn't happened yet, and so as a result, you can't, we can't be, you know, have missed the whole day of the Lord. Um, now, the word, the falling away, is interesting. It's, it's the Greek word apostasy or apostasize, 
And we do use that term to mean someone who loses their faith, someone who falls away from, from faith in Christ. It's not used in the New Testament that way, interestingly, and, and this is the only place it's used. In the New Testament, there are all kinds of descriptions of times when people would fall away from the Lord, and yet this word is never used. So I'm not completely convinced that what he's talking about is a falling away from the faith. Um, now, this word, to be fair, is used in the Greek Old Testament sometimes to refer to people who were you know, leaving the faith or falling away from the Lord. But there's another possibility that would make a lot of sense, and it's an interesting possibility, and I, I don't teach it dogmatically, but the word apostasy, um, which we translated here, falling away, it's two words put together. Um, the main part of the word is from the word histemi, which is the Greek word, and sorry if this bores you, but uh, there's two or three people here that will probably appreciate it. Um, <laughs> the word histemi means to stand or to be solid. So when something is standing or enduring, it's histemi. Now, we know this word because we use the word static, and there are two words that are opposed to each other, static and dynamic. Dynamic means something's moving. Static means something is not moving. It's still. Are you with me? So, so that word, the same word that the word static comes from, histemi, means to stand. Now, it has the prefix apo, A-P-O, in the Greek, and that word means to be away from to be removed from. So if you, if you take the word literally as away from standing, you, you could certainly say, well, that makes perfectly good sense because they're not standing fast in the faith. They're going away from that which they stood on. And so that's a plausible explanation. And frankly, that's by far the majority understanding of this word in this passage from people of all theological persuasions. But there are others who have said, what if it's talking about when you're standing and all of a sudden you're caught up, you're away from that fixed position, all of a sudden now you're moving away from a static position towards a dynamic position. And there are some good Greek scholars and good commentators who take this as referring to the rapture. Um, but again, it's not the majority opinion. I don't know if that's what it means or not. But if it did, and if Paul had used that term with the Thessalonians before, and so they understood what it meant, now when he talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together, and he says, no, first the falling away comes and the man of sin is revealed, that would, that's an interesting possibility that would have been very clear to them, but that might have left us a bit confused because we have developed the word apostasy um, long after this was, was written. And again, if the word in 51 AD or whatever, aphistemi um, or apahistemi, if that came to mean falling away from the faith, 
you got to wonder why letters that were written in the later 50s and the 60s and clear to almost 100, why that word was never used to refer to what we would consider to be apostasy. So those are questions I have if it's a possibility, but uh, I'm certainly not dogmatic on it. But something has to come first, and the man of sin is going to be revealed, the son of perdition. So again, something happens that then you know, denotes that, okay, now we're talking about the day of the Lord. Now we are in this period of judgment. Um, and a part of that is, again, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The word perdition is a word that just means destruction, and typically son of, um, in, in their um, idioms, would refer to somebody who's really indicative of that value. So it's a real slam on the, the character that, that we would consider as the Antichrist. Again, we have several chapters in Revelation that are devoted to him and what he does. They didn't have that, but they did have the book of Daniel, which refers to this character and if you look back at Daniel chapter 9, the chapter winds itself up by referring to this same event that we have come to call the abomination of desolation, where, where this character rises up and goes in and defiles the temple and declares himself to be God. Um, but he's saying he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, there are people who have done this in the past. There are some people who see this as a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes, for instance, who did just this, but that was before Christ. And Antiochus Epiphanes was probably a foreshadowing, perhaps somewhat of a fulfillment of, of Daniel, but... It doesn't explain why this late Paul would be still saying, don't worry, we're not at the day of the Lord yet because this is going to happen. So if Antiochus Epiphanes was a prefiguring of this, then he's still saying there's something ahead, there's something to look forward to in this. So I know this can get kind of confusing, but I'm trying not to stack the deck and just take what it says here. There's this bad guy who is going to defile the temple, declare himself to be God, pretend to be God. Now, again, when it comes to the timing of the rapture, there are people who are saying, why would Paul tell them all this stuff if they are going to be in heaven and not witness this stuff? And that's a good, that's a good question. Um, the way that I would look at that, the way I would handle that is, He's giving this as negative evidence. He's saying, you haven't seen this happen, so therefore we aren't there yet, and you haven't missed the rapture. And so is that kind of making sense to you? Okay, cool. So he goes into the temple, which again brings up an interesting point. There is no temple. So how can this be imminent with no temple? Well, you know... Um, 
if 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 you had to build rebuild the temple in Aliso Viejo, then I would say, yeah, a minimum of seven or eight years just to throw the thing together, just with permits. But you can actually the temple was a very simple structure, and if you can cut through bureaucratic red tape, I believe that a temple can be built there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount um, pretty quickly. It doesn't take much. They could make it as a tilt-up structure. And today there are people in Israel who are adamantly preparing for the next temple. They're studying and practicing the various rites of the temple. If you go there on a tour to Jerusalem, you can go to the Temple um, Mount Institute and see they have the menorah, they have the everything except the Ark of the Covenant that's necessary, all these gold dishes and everything else, the priestly garments, they're training priests to do it. They believe, and they're getting ready for the temple. The one thing that's missing is the Ark of the Covenant, which people go, yeah, but I know that's, I think, it, you know, Harrison Ford put it at the Smithsonian so they can get it out when they need it. There are a lot of different theories about where the Ark of the Covenant is. Most of the Jews believe that God is going to supernaturally give them the Ark of the Covenant when they build the temple and set it up. The Ark of the Covenant, by the way, wasn't there, almost certainly wasn't there in the temple when Jesus was alive. Um, the last we know of the Ark of the Covenant was um, hundreds of years before Jesus. So um, it's not absolutely necessary, but apparently there will be a temple. Now, um, again, the temple that was there during this time was destroyed 20 years later, 70 AD, by Titus, the Roman. But a lot of prophecies refer to the building of the temple. How is that going to happen? I don't know. Um, but you can see right now, with the way that the Jewish people are starting to get fed up with bending over backwards to placate America and the Palestinians, that they're just about at the point now they're starting to build settlements there in Jerusalem and where in an area that's a disputed territory ever since 1967. So you can see things starting to work where they might just go, you know what, this is our country. And up on the Temple Mount, there's a huge vacant lot. There's nothing. Now, I'd love to see it even more vacant, don't get me wrong, but there's plenty of room to build a temple up there. And there's nothing in Scripture that would dictate that it has to be on the exact same spot. It doesn't say it won't be, and so people would say, well, you know, you can't build it because of the Dome of the Rock. Not necessarily. The temple can be wherever God sets it up for him to make it, and there's nothing superstitious about that particular location as far as God's concerned. The point is, where is God? So there could easily be a temple. Later in the millennium, there's definitely a temple and that causes problems. A lot of people are amillennial, by the way, just because of the millennial scriptures that talk about a temple being there with sacrifices. And they're going, how in the world, after Jesus has sacrificed himself, why would they have a temple with functioning sacrifices during the millennium? And there are a whole lot of people who, that's their primary argument for being amillennial. Now, it is a little weird to me that there's going to be another temple and that there will be one here on the earth if, if in fact, there literally is, and it sure seems to say that. 
But just think about this. And this is just a sidelight, but this comes up a lot from people, so it's just something to think about. The Old Testament temple, Solomon's temple, what did it do? Was it efficacious? In other words, did killing animals in the temple actually cause people's sins to be forgiven? A lot of people think it did, but the Bible makes it really clear. No, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. So the Old Testament temple, Solomon's temple and later Zerubbabel's temple that was there in the time of Christ, they were sacrificing, but those were only symbolic sacrifices. Those sacrifices were not efficacious. They didn't bring about forgiveness. So what they were is they were looking forward to the one sacrifice that would make a difference, Jesus Christ giving himself and dying on the cross. So when people say, why would they do sacrifices again after Jesus died on the cross? I would say, why did they ever do them before Jesus died on the cross? If there is something that symbolizes a future sacrifice from Jesus, there's no problem with having a future sacrifice that would symbolize what Jesus did in the past. In fact, in a symbolic way, that's what communion is. And we could say, well, why do we have the broken body and blood of the Lord? He's already sacrificed himself. Well, it's a memorial. And so if, in fact, there are real sacrifices during the millennium, they would be memorial sacrifices. But this will probably start during the tribulation. And I would suggest that if an Antichrist wanted to take over and become a ruler of the world, a great way to do that would be for him to solve the problem of Jerusalem. And if he allowed the Jews to have a temple, and he found a way to placate the Arabs at the same time, and that may be how he comes into power, is by pulling all that together. One suggestion is that he would, and it's possible, by the way, that the location of the original temple um, is not right where the Dome of the Rock is in the first place. But in Ezekiel, when it lays out the Temple Mount, it refers to a wall that separates the, the clean, the holy, from the profane. And he said, measure it, but don't measure outside that wall. So if some Antichrist came up with a deal that goes, hey, look, man, the Arabs can have their side of Jerusalem, the Jews, just let them build their little temple and have it up here, and boom, peace. And so perhaps that's the way that, that the peace is going to come about that the Antichrist brings. But at any rate, this disgusting guy claims to be God, and he's not saying, you're going to watch, you're going to see this. He's saying, it's been prophesied that this is going to happen. Hasn't happened yet, right? So you're not there. Take it easy. Just quit being so shaken. And now he says, verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He goes, man, I tried to explain it. But they were like a lot of us. You sit there and you've heard these prophecy talks over and over again. You kind of glaze over and you get it all confused. And it's like, now what was that? So, you know, apparently, again, ADD Christians in, first Thess in Thessalonica. And so he says, and now you know, apparently he had told them, what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Something is keeping the Antichrist from being revealed. 
For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So he says, there's all this work within in a lawless way or in a worldly kind of system that's already happening, but there's something that's keeping that from happening. There's something that's holding back this all-out falling away. And again, by the way, if the falling away that he refers to is just apostasy from the faith, come on, we're already there. We've been there for a long time. It started in the first century and has continued ever since that people are falling away. But he's talking about something much more serious here, and there is something that is keeping it from happening. So what is he that restrains? What's holding back the Antichrist? What makes it a little tricky is, notice in verse 6 it says, and now you know what is restraining, but in verse 7 he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. In verse 6, it's referring with a neuter pronoun. In the Greek, they have masculine, feminine, and neuter. And it doesn't have a lot to do with whether something's male or female. It's just a grammatical structure. But subjects and verbs agree in, in, in case. So he's referring to the restrainer, whatever that is, as neuter, as what, but he's also referring to the restrainer as a person, with a personal masculine pronoun. Now, the only time that that's not typical in Greek at all, but there are several instances in the Gospel of Mark, and I think in Luke and in Acts, where the Holy Spirit is referred to in a in an individual context, with both a neuter and a masculine noun or pronoun. And why that's important is because the Holy Spirit can be described as, the Holy Spirit is a person, but not in, you know, you can refer to the Holy Spirit as, a, as if he's a man, but he's not a man, just like God isn't a man. Jesus was a man because he became a man. But the father isn't just a man. He doesn't have you know, necessarily male characteristics. Um, and the Holy Spirit especially is, it's hard to get a grip on the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have a body. You can't see him. You can tell where he's been, Jesus said. But so if he's referring to the Holy Spirit, it would be proper to refer to him with a personal pronoun as well as a neuter um, pronoun. Now, this is a problem, though, because if this is about the Holy Spirit, which it would seem to be about, how can the Holy Spirit be taken away? How can you say that the Holy Spirit would leave? Because the Holy Spirit's God, and God is everywhere. It's one of the what we call the incommunicable attributes of God, that he is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. So how can he leave? Well, he can. He can come and go. That's what's interesting about the Holy Spirit. And there are times you can look in the Old Testament where Saul, for instance, it says that the Holy Spirit left him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit filled him. The Holy Spirit left him. And so when it's referring to the Holy Spirit, he can. he's always there. Jesus said the Holy Spirit has 
always been with you. He will be in you when you are saved. And he refers to the Holy Spirit as coming upon you. And so the Holy Spirit can be in those different relationships. What in the world could possibly be holding back the work of the Antichrist, the rise of the Antichrist? Well, the Holy Spirit being upon people, perhaps. And, and now, it follow my logic, if the Holy Spirit is in and upon Christians, in everyone who's a Christian, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not his, and upon those who are really serving him and doing his will and being controlled by him, let's say you take all those Christians out of the way. Now the Holy Spirit isn't in anyone, and the Holy Spirit is not upon anyone unless there is a special exception, which he will do at least with two witnesses during the tribulation period. And so, and even in a practical sense, you can kind of see this. Um, years and years ago, they had all kinds of technology whereby they could stamp you and you'd be able to use it like a smart card. And they put they implanted chips in in animals and things like that, still do. And and yet, why has that never become popular? It's a great idea. Why hasn't it become popular? Because Christians throw a fit and say, oh, it's the Antichrist, it's the Antichrist. Christians drag their feet on almost every technology. I remember when I bought the first computer that Calvary Chapel ever had, it was very controversial because people thought, you know, the Antichrist could come and take over the church through this cheap CPM-based computer. Um, he would have at least waited for a Macintosh. But, um, <laughs> but see, the thing is, you know, the, the Christians do have an effect. All the time, things that they want to do are shot down by what they would describe as hysteria, paranoia, and whatever, and yet it's Christians who are involved in that. So there certainly is some sort of restraining force in the churches of the world, in the work of God, in the Holy Spirit through people. And so to me, the best way that you can envision that restraint being taken away is all of a sudden in one fell swoop, all the Christians are gone. Now talk about apostasy. Imagine what every church will be like if you take all the Christians out of it. You know, you could go, there are some Christian, There are some churches that don't have a lot of Christians. They're going to get a lot worse when they don't have any. But imagine a church where most of the people are Christians. I mean, look around this room. Who do you think will be in charge if the Christians are gone? I have some theories, but I... You know. <laughs> No, I mean, radically, the world is going to change. There's going to be a huge amount of property that's unclaimed. There's going to be presidents of corporations that are all of a sudden are just gone. There's going to be perhaps car accidents, train accidents, plane crashes, just a nightmare for this world if Paul is correct in 1 Thessalonians 4 and the Christians are all going to be caught up. So... That's the best explanation I have for what the restraint is about. 
It's the Holy Spirit as he indwells and empowers believers. Now, other people try to explain this in some other way, but frankly, most people who don't believe in a rapture or who don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture don't have a real good explanation to say what this is. They just say, yeah, we don't know what it is, or they just say, it has to be God, he is restraining, and he'll stop restraining. But that just doesn't fit with the idea of something that's restraining being taken away. So um, that's one of, the, one of the reasons why, even understanding the problems with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think this would be consistent with um, the, the idea that the rapture takes place before. And then the lawless one, verse 8, will be revealed. So don't look for the Antichrist right now. Don't think, I wonder if he's Obama. I wonder. Ever, ever since I've been a Christian, I hear, you know, it's Henry Kissinger, it's this guy, it's that. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. The Antichrist isn't going to be revealed until I personally believe I'm going to be gone by then. And so he says, then the lawless one will be revealed. The, the, you know, the intimation of this all is, we're not there yet because he hasn't been revealed. And he's going to be revealed after some event where restraint is taken away. That hasn't happened, therefore you're not in the tribulation. And he says, the lawless one whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, very graphic, and destroy with the brightness of his coming. He will be absolutely destroyed when Jesus comes to judge him. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And again, you can read about this in Revelation, but Paul's just kind of laying it out in general. And he says, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So who is going to be influenced by the lawless one? The people who have rejected Jesus Christ. Vast numbers of people. Now, if this was something that was happening during the tribulation, to me, man, the tribulation starts, it's going to be the greatest evangelistic um, opportunity there is if there were a bunch of Christians who were still here. But he is describing the people who are taken advantage of, and it's basically the whole world, as being those who rejected the truth. Now, again, if the Antichrist comes up as soon as the tribulation starts, and he kind of has to because he has to be powerful enough three and a half years later to pull off the going into the temple and claiming he's God. So let's just say that it happens and there is or there isn't a rapture before the tribulation, how long would it take for there to be a vast number of people who would reject Jesus Christ and follow the Antichrist? That's not the kind of thing that just happens overnight. These would seem to be people who had opportunities and missed their opportunities and rejected Jesus Christ and therefore immediately subjected to the deception of the Antichrist as soon as he is revealed. And I can't fathom how he could come to power unless it was just vast you know, loyalty to him on the part of people who 
had um, disbelieved in Jesus Christ. They didn't receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Saved from what? <laughs> this, this day, this time of judgment, I would say. Um, because there is no testimony in this whole description or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 talking about judgment of Christians being there, witnessing, being martyred, or anything else. Now, towards the end of the tribulation period, you do have a large number of Christians who are martyred during the tribulation. But again, that's after several years, and the testimony of the two witnesses and them being raised from the dead, a lot happens. The ministry of the 144,000 sealed Jews the Jews don't even get it that Jesus is their Messiah until well into the second half of the tribulation period. So you'd think there would be, if, if Christians were there, there would be some sign of it. And by the way, I'd hate to see if the Christians were there, but the Holy Spirit was taken away from us. Jesus said that would never happen. So, so he says that they should, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Sadly, when people reject the truth, God just says, okay, then believe what you want. Just go ahead and do what you want to do. He did that, you remember, with Pharaoh. When it talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart, and then it finally says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so God will do that eventually. If you refuse him, if you don't, receive him, if you reject him, at some point he goes, you know what? Your ignorance you think is bliss, fine. The Holy Spirit's removed. There's no convicting of sin at this time if, if in fact, the Holy Spirit's not indwelling people anymore. And so it, it's, it would seem to be a time when God just says, you guys go ahead and believe what you want. C.S. Lewis said... Um, I think it was in Surprised by Joy or maybe one of his other books, Mere Christianity or something. But he said, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who will bow their knee to Jesus and say, thy will be done. And other people to whom Jesus says, all right then, have it your way. And that's what happens. It's like either you accept what he says or he will tell you to go ahead and do it your own way. You want, you want to save yourself? Fine. Go ahead and do it. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. Past, you know, That's something that they hadn't done. But they had pleasure in unrighteousness. There's nobody going to be having a bunch of pleasure in the tribulation period. So again, this would seem to be referring to people who were enjoying unrighteousness before all hell broke loose on the earth, plagues and everything else. So again, describing those who rejected Jesus and had pleasure in unrighteousness, um, it seems like that pleasure was past. But, verse 13, and I'm glad there's a but, <laughs> but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification 
by the Spirit and believe in, belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, that's what's going to be going on on the world. It ain't happening yet, so don't worry. You didn't miss anything. But I'm telling you, he says, God chose you from the very beginning. And I love that truth even though I don't understand it. Even though I can't always explain divine election, I will certainly not water it down. I will certainly not qualify it. I will certainly not pretend like it's not there. This was something that Paul took great joy in, and he gave them great encouragement in, that God chose you, and he has a plan for your life. And what he is doing is making you holy and saving you. And it would seem that what he's saying was God's plan for you is different than his plan for the world. Because again, it's really hard to comfort yourself with the idea that things are going to get worse, the Antichrist is going to take over, abomination of desolation, all these plagues and everything else, and you'll probably end up being killed. So way to go. No, this is, God has a plan for you. And he chose you. And the fact that he chose you is an indication that his plan for you is different than those who are said to reject him. Now, some people have a problem with God choosing people. But again, in the same context, these other people are people who rejected him, so he must have been offered. Now, there are people who accentuate God's divine election. Well, first, there are some people who explain it by saying, you know, God chose you because he knew that you would accept him. Um, the Bible says, for those he foreknew, them he also predestined. But the problem is, this is a choice that was from the beginning. And it never says that, that you're the one that actually decides, and then God chooses you based on that. He just says he chose you. Arminians would try to, I think, water it down by saying, of course, the reason he chose you is that he knew what you would do. But again, scriptures never say that. Um, in fact, they say he just chose you according to his will, his predetermined will, even before the foundation of the world, here from the beginning. Now, Calvinists, on the other hand, say he, that he, they have what they call unconditional election. And that is, God chose you for absolutely no reason other than that he wanted to, and he couldn't have possibly used his knowledge of the future in order to do that. And so the Calvinists and the Arminians really clash. Um, I don't know if either one is right or wrong. Neither one is taught in Scripture in that way. And so I would never say unconditional election as, as the Reformed um, followers do, as the Calvinists do, because the Bible doesn't say what God's conditions were. As far as I'm concerned, God chose me. I don't care what he used to figure out why he was going to choose me. He chose me. That's all I care about. If, in fact, God does look down into the future and go, I see who walked forward at the Harvest Crusade, so I choose them. 
you know, I'm not going to be like a Calvinist and say, no, God can't do that. God could do that. He may have. I'm not going to tell God what he can and can't use in making his choice. God does what he wants to do. He knows everything. He makes the right choices. If you are a Christian, then he chose you. And you are in a special situation with God. If you're going, I don't like that, and I'm not a Christian, I don't know. Maybe you're not chosen. You go, that's not fair. Well, accept him then. If you accept him, you'll find out you were chosen all along. (laughs) But Paul's encouragement to them here is, you guys are in a special category because God chose you. He called you by our gospel, based on his grace, nothing else was free, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. (laughs) Interesting choice of words there in light of our discussion about going away from standing. Um, And again, this could be taken either way. Stand fast, hang in there, be solid, and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistles. So he goes, hang on to what I taught you, hang on to what I have written to you. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us eternal consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And what a beautiful way to wrap this section up. He's going, the God who called you, may he, you know, he's given us, he loves us, he's given us everlasting comfort and good hope by grace. May he comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. May God do what, Paul said, I told you about clear back in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, may you find the study of future things as being something that provides comfort for you, and that comfort will come from him. And ultimately, you will be with Jesus, and therefore, you don't have to get shook. You haven't missed anything. The train hasn't left the station But here's what's going to happen when it does. But your situation is that you don't have to worry about all of that. Now, it's also interesting that, and there are several passages of Scripture that say, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've talked about some of those. In this case, Jesus is listed first, and then God the Father. And and Jesus is referred to as himself, specifically autos as being he himself, Jesus Christ himself, and our God and Father. So two members of the three members of the Trinity, two of them are, are, are referred to here as both doing the same thing. Who is it who, is, who loves us, gave us eternal consolation, good hope, comforts our hearts, establishes us. Who does it? Well, Jesus. And it's unbelievable if he's not God to list him first before the Father. But they're interchangeable. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, Jesus and the Father both did it. 
Okay? They are both actively involved in doing this work in our lives. One more point to make in verse 16, and it doesn't come out in the English. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and so on. The who, uh, the pronoun there is singular. So if they both did it, it should be plural. That whom they are doing this, but it's singular. And, and so the way that people who don't believe that Jesus is God, they're saying, well, it's actually just referring to the Father. He's the one who does all those things. But when you look at those things, they are the things that it's always said that Jesus does them, and usually that's the emphasis. So just another of the numerous places in Scripture where it's very clear that, you know, that Paul was convinced that Jesus is God. And this is one of the verses, by the way, that people who don't believe that Paul wrote Second Thessalonians say that, you know, there's no way Paul wrote Second Thessalonians because it's clear whoever wrote Second Thessalonians believed that Jesus was God, and nobody thought that in 50 AD. Oh, yes, they did. <laughs> and there's way more evidence that Paul wrote Second Thessalonians even that he wrote First Thessalonians. And all the manuscript support is there and all the early church references. And, and so that's just ridiculous kind of reverse logic that Paul says that Jesus is God and this was written you know, in 51 or so AD. Therefore, you know, Paul must not have written it because Paul couldn't have believed. How about just letting him speak for himself? He clearly believed that Jesus was God. And so... Just a great chapter. I hope that, I know it's complicated and, and maybe just irrelevant to some of you at this point. It's not irrelevant, though. This is important stuff, and it's things that we should look through and consider. And I'd encourage you, if this is kind of new to you, go back after you have a chance to let it settle a little bit and, and really pray and ask God to speak to you from the passage. And go ahead and read through it. Read 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5, and then read 2 Thessalonians 2, which picks it up. And you can come to your own conclusions. And if you disagree with me, um, that's, that's fine with me. But Paul's trying to say something here. And whatever it is that he's saying is supposed to make us feel better. And so that's, you know, that's the bottom line of it. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thank you for this revelation. Thank you for this uh, very descriptive explanation that Paul gave to the Thessalonians. Um, and Lord, I pray that this will be applied to our lives as well. If we ever start feeling like we've missed out on your will, if we ever start losing hope, if we ever start thinking that that maybe we're out of your plan, Lord, would you please remind us from your word that you're the one that called us and you're the one who works out your plan in our lives and everything that happens to us is exactly the way you want it to be. And Lord, we do look forward to the day when, Lord, you take us to be with you forever. And we don't usually look forward to the day of the Lord, to the tribulation and the judgment that will immediately follow it, because we hate to think of 
people who are lost, who have rejected you being destroyed. And yet, Lord, we know that everything falls into your plan. And God, we know that you've got to destroy evil somehow. And the only way you're going to destroy evil is by destroying those who reject your son. And so, Lord, we even look forward to the day when finally the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdoms of your dear son. We thank you for holding that day off because you are patient toward us, because you don't want anyone to perish, but you want everyone to come to repentance. So help us to do our job of getting that word out by your spirit, Lord. Just use us and draw people to you so that we can get this over with. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.